I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Ruth and Ruth chapter 3. Our series is titled Redeeming Joy, and it has been a joy to be together in this precious part of our Bibles. This morning, the reading reflects somewhat of a romantic tone to it. I don't want to just maybe stir in your hearts this morning that in a holy sense, in fact, perhaps in the most sacred sense, if you will follow me here, there is a romanticism about God's love for you. God loves you perfectly. He loves you wholly. He loves you in a way in which he longs to woo you. He is jealous of you. If you're a child of his, he is looking on. He is looking into. He is looking over your life as a jealous lover. And we don't, it doesn't take much doctrinal or imaginational thought this morning to look into this passage in Ruth chapter 3 and see some, some gospel overtones to exactly how God has demonstrated his love for you and I. And so I do invite you, even as we'll be looking at the very practical aspects of this passage and digging into it and finding very much Jesus Christ in this passage, I do invite you to also be running on another channel this morning in this message, because I believe that there would be several ways in which we could come to this passage this morning and break it open through the proclamation of the Word of God, and I've chosen one way. But I believe that there's others and other tones that can be brought into this passage that I invite you to explore and to enjoy with a biblically informed theology in a later study or in a continuing study in Ruth chapter 3. But I ask that you would follow along with me as I read in the Word of God, beginning in verse number 1 of Ruth 3, and we'll read the entire chapter. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. And put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. For you are a redeemer. And he said, And you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. 
for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. The man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Thus says the word of God. The Lord blesses reading among his people. Pray with me. God of Ruth, and of Boaz, and of Naomi, and of Elimelech, and of Israel, and of the church. Our God, our great God, we come to you this morning. We ask that while we open the Bibles, that you would really be the one who breaks open the scriptures. Spirit of God, illumine our hearts this morning, that we may perceive the great riches that are found in God, in Yahweh, in his covenant, in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we, we praise you and thank you that we could behold someone and something so wonderful as this truth and this person of Jesus Christ. And Father, through this unique vessel, through Ruth and the others mentioned here in this passage, we pray that we might go along with them and see your great Hesed this morning. Oh God, be merciful to us and teach us once again that you're a God full of mercy and everlasting and kindness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Redeeming Rest. Redeeming Rest. How many of you need rest this morning? Now, don't act upon that right now. <laughs> Physically. But we are all in need of rest, spiritually. And really the theme of rest is found throughout scriptures. But this morning we recognize that Naomi needed security. She was a woman who had lost much of her identity, was very disoriented in returning back into her hometown, and now seemed impoverished and in great need. She had the need of security. Ruth needed rest. Now, rest, certainly in a physical way, we see her being very faithful through the months of April, May, and into June in the barley fields, harvesting barley maybe six days a week, working very diligently, working hard to provide. Ruth needed rest. But Ruth needed rest even spiritually because she had come from a faraway land remember, from Moab, and was serving underneath the slave master god, Chemosh, who, just like every other false god, whipped and beat his, his followers into submission without any reward and without any recompense and without any true truth. Ruth needed rest spiritually. And she was beginning to discover more and more who it was that she had pledged her loyalty to. 
who it was that she was lodging with in Naomi, and who was this God of Israel that she had said, your God will be my God. And now in this chapter we find she is going to learn more about who this God is while claiming to the truth that she's been learning about him all along. Naomi needs security. Ruth needs rest. Both find Hesed. The journey from grief to grace in a covenant relationship with God is paved with Hesed. The journey from grief to grace in a covenant relationship with God is paved with Hesed. And maybe, by the way, maybe this is where this message finds you, or maybe you remember how this message has found you of the message of Hesed of God. God tested for you in a journey of grief to grace. But the journey of grief to grace in a covenant relationship with God is paved with Hesed. Hesed, as we said, is, is uh, translated into the Old Testament scriptures almost 250 times in many different words, in many different ways. The psalmist likes to use the word steadfast love or everlasting kindness is often how he uses the word. But all throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew word comes across as Kindness and mercy and love. Both need Hesed. Naomi and Ruth. And I believe everybody this morning, every one of us, needs to continue to dwell in the land of Hesed. In God's providence, God ordains that at every turn of the journey, He has prepared a rich supply of Hesed, offering it to those who will cease their striving and be still with Him. Where are you in life's journey? In the middle of this short book, we find this key verse in verse number nine. It's the fulcrum, really, of the entire story of the plot of God's providence. It's where Boaz says, who are you? Likely because of the darkness and because of the, the blurriness of eyes awakened to the startling feature of someone being around him, maybe in his tent or wherever he is sleeping. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. For those who pursue the redemption of God, he has bound himself to supply abundantly. God supplies from emptiness to fullness, from grief to grace, from famine to faithfulness and fruitfulness, from despair to courage, from unbelief to hope, from empty crib to an empty tomb. You see, the reconciliation and redemption of God that is brought to us through Hesed fills up everything and fills up that lack, that restlessness that we have in our spirits. And Naomi and Ruth went on on an intense journey. An intense journey. A journey further than from Moab to Bethlehem, further than that. Naomi and Ruth went on an intense journey to find that the God whom they had pledged themselves to would truly be bountiful, not merely in barley, but in Hesed. In today's chapter, we're going to look at in the chapter through three different lenses. But firstly, we'll see the utter instance, insistence of helplessness demonstrated by Naomi and Ruth's plotting and planning. Secondly, we will see the answering of helplessness by the covering of Hesed. And lastly, we will see the overarching providence of Yahweh. And if you have a bulletin this morning, on the back side of the bulletin is a suggested outline on how to break apart this passage one of many ways. 
But first, let's look at the insistence of helplessness. And really, this is found in verses 1 through 9. And in the dialogue of Ruth and Naomi, and then the approach of Ruth in, into the place where Boaz was. Now, you remember, again, the setting is that, that they have moved to Bethlehem. They're barren. They are poor and impoverished and needing for something good to happen to them. Naomi no longer goes by the name Naomi, or at least in spirit, it goes by the name Mara. But Ruth has been faithful, and where Naomi has lodged, she has lodged, and she, she has been going out in the fields, and she's been protected by Boaz, saying to his men, make sure that she's protected, and also, by the way, make sure that there's some actually some extra barley for her. Ruth met with him at a lunchtime one time, and we don't know how many interactions have happened since that lunchtime happened early in the season, but it, it's likely, I mean, we feel like there hasn't been much interaction taking place until this time at the end of the barley season. You see, how we know this is at the end of the barley season is because they're at the threshing floor now. We have been uh, introduced to the threshing floor early in the book of Judges where we came to know a man named Gideon who was threshing a wheat and, and uh, harvesting the wheat and, and uh, dispensing of it in a way that would become useful and hiding uh, in a wine press to, to, to thresh the wheat. Often they would do this into the night hours so as to not call attention to what they were doing. And so Boaz, here, maybe with some other workers, was threshing the wheat there in the darkness um, to avoid marauders and also thieves. And so it wouldn't be uncommon for them to even sleep next to their harvest as a means of security for that which they had been working so hard, really all season long, but especially in the recent moments, and gathering together this harvest so that it become useful. Boaz is now late at night resting. He has eaten and here he is sleeping, maybe in a tent, but he is, he is out there in the darkness. And Naomi plots a daring and risky plan. And, and I want us to break apart what, how, how badly this could have happened because we ought to feel the, a little bit of this tension in the scripture here. Naomi tells Ruth to go and do something that really seems very uh, out of place uh, even in today's culture, and it was out of place in that culture too. There was many different parts to this that could have really fallen apart easily, number one. Let's remember that Ruth is a Moabite. Okay? She is a, a woman from a pagan land. She's not a, a part of Israel uh, in a sense. And so therefore she would be looked upon with suspicion and also looked upon by someone who is a noble man like Boaz, someone who is unworthy to be in her tent. In his tent. And so the first, the first risk, if we could list them out, would be this, that, that he would look and see at his feet this woman who is, who is from another country, from a, a pagan land, and, and really dismiss her as being a really ungodly woman, and even in an immoral way as well, would, which would be associated with being from a pagan land. And so as a noble man, he could look upon this woman with great disdain and dismiss her from his tent. The plot would be spoiled. Then we also see another alternative, and that would be that maybe Boaz at nighttime wouldn't be as noble as we had thought he would be. And we know Ruth to be noble. So the second scenario would be that he would not be noble, and she would be noble, and that wouldn't end well. Or a third scenario, and we would see that, that he would find dismissal from her, from um, uh, from the point of view that she was a young woman, and he an older woman, and not 
believing that that he needed to have a relationship with her. And then and then fourthly we find the great risk of her um, her and him both not being noble together and being immoral. And all of these are very real, real life scenarios. We read an entirely different scenario, but we recognize this is a great risk that Naomi has come. And, and I was considering this this week. Why didn't, why didn't Naomi just tell Ruth to go eat lunch again? I don't know all of the whys. But I think you can recognize there's a great risk to what's taking place here. Naomi tells Ruth to go, and when he is awakened, that he will tell you what you should do. Ruth takes a very helpless position here at the feet of Boaz's bed. It is a very helpless position. And from what we read in the scriptures, it is entirely moral. And helplessness manifested in her life becomes something of great reward. Uh, it is met with great reward. But helplessness doesn't always take the form of humble submission. Consider your own track record and our own lives and how hard it is for us when we feel helpless to be humble when we're helpless. Is it hard for you to be humble when you're helpless? Isn't it ironic that our, our human nature, our sin nature, runs contrary to the very, to the very, the very essence, the very point, point of need, and we have nothing to be proud about, and yet we, we have so much covering and so much pride and arrogance and ego at stake in our helplessness that we overcompensate, whether by behavior or action or even self-counsel and thought, that we, that we really, one of the hardest things for us to do is to, on the inside, look like what we do on the outside. Helplessness can be experienced in pride, but it can also be experienced in humility. And there's a lot hinging on how helplessness is dealt with, isn't there? There's a lot hinging on it. Helplessness really is the perfect posture. It's the perfect position to receive Hesed. We find this to be modeled here. This is the perfect position for it to be in. We, it, it ends up really, really well, and it we recognize that it ends up really well because we have someone who's willing to be a redeemer and we have someone who's willing to be humble, recognize the salvific overshadowing of this. We have someone who's willing to be a redeemer and we have someone who's willing to be humble. And in this we have the perfect equation for, by the way, the gospel. For redemption. And in this, we, we find this, in a way, sorted out on a, on a human level in this act of redemption here. We have a willing redeemer and a, and a humble, helpless person. When helplessness is offered to God, hesed is God's response. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when, when we offer ourselves as helpless, that God is a God of mercy? This will affect every part of how you walk every life because one thing we need to understand biblically and that is that there really is never a time when you and I are not helpless. Really truly in the nature of our condition and in the frailty of our faith and the weakness even of our whole person including our body, mind and heart we truly are helpless. More helpless than we even can assess. More helpless than we even can admit. And the fact is that until we come to that recognition, until we come to that confession, 
God cannot meet us with hesed. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So God does not give hesed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. When helplessness is offered to God, hesed is his response. This is not often how the world treats us or how we would imagine the world would treat us. So often our helplessness becomes exploited by the world. It becomes exploited even by the evil one, the accuser. The devil himself exploits our helplessness and parades it in front of us, seeking to shame us in our helplessness. Seeking to, to cloud us and seeking to frustrate us and seeking to challenge us that, that we ought to just, just wallow in our helplessness rather than crying for help. But not only does the evil one have an agenda against our helplessness to lead us into despair and to, to keep a resistant spirit to Hesed, but also the world loves to prey upon helplessness. And it is, it, and it's just the, the elbowing forward, it's the shouldering ahead of one another. It's the, certainly we, we, we see signs of charity, signs of giving during this time of year, the Salvation Army bell ringing in, in the front of the stores. But we're talking even more on a relational basis, but really the, the ethos of the world is to crush the helpless. And that is more in a relational way than it is maybe on a societal way. It's better seen, I think, more evidence in how we, how we manage our relationships and how we view one another in this world. And so the world crushes helplessness. And then our own, our own shame, our own awareness of indwelling sin, our own awareness of helplessness also frustrates the path to Hesed. So Naomi and Ruth come up with this plan. And the plan we find actually ends up to be a very good plan as it models what is actually necessary for someone to receive help who's helpless. And that is to lay at the feet of the one who can redeem. As one who could be misunderstood, as one who could be abandoned, as one who could be com is completely helpless. But saying, unless you help, I'm barren, I'm forsaken, I'm alone. I want to park here just another, just try to take this screw and turn it just a little deeper on all of us. I believe that there, there ought to be a, a further craving, a further getting a hold of the horns of the altar in our hearts, where we are really saying, God, I need for you, first of all, to show me how helpless I am. I understand the biblical definition. I understand the truth of my helplessness. I feel very aware of my weakness. But God, in, in within me, develop in me, teach me the deep sense of my helplessness that I may know the fullness of your chesed. For it isn't until you humble yourself to lay at the feet and say, unless you redeem me, I am barren, I am, I am departed. I'm lost unless we come to a realization of how helpless we are. We have no need for Hesed. Until we recognize how lost we are, we don't know that we need to be found. Oh, that God would break our hearts, even afresh this morning, 
break our hearts and show us and reveal in us just how much we need his testament. Because we don't have it all together. And we desperately need for him to step in and to cover us. So we find that Naomi and Ruth, they put together this plan and Ruth goes in and she performs this plan and she takes it to just a little bit further of a level. She shares the plan with Boaz. She's willing to admit and openly confess what the plan is. Not manipulate. She's willing to beg. She's willing to ask. She's willing to to plead. She's willing to say, unless you... This, by the way, needs to be the heart of every prayer for Hesed. Unless you go. I I don't have anything to my account. I don't have any means by which to rescue myself from this situation. I don't have any means to, to cover over my shame. I'm sharing with you the plan, God. The plan that you have. Where you have said, I will cover those who will come to me. And so Boaz agrees, and Boaz really is taken back. As, as you hear his exclamation, he, he is probably an older man. He views her as a daughter, but he also recognizes that as a younger woman, she, she could have her pick. There's other young men who she could pursue, and he feels very unworthy of this, of this woman, even on a physical and romantic level. But he agrees to the plan, and he says, he says the kindness that you have shown, that has said, that you have shown in this moment is greater than all that has said previous in your story. Notice how he explains that and think through that with me. What he is saying is, is the loyalty that you have shown to, to Naomi to come with her, to provide for us. See me working in the fields. You've been very selfless and you've been very honorable in doing so. You, you certainly have kept to your pledge. Now he says this has, this form of Hesed is greater than all of that. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of a greater hesed in the sense that what she is doing now isn't just for her, but it's for the entire family that she is representing. Including Naomi. And including not just a, merely a, tempor- a temporary uh, meeting of the needs, but a permanent meeting of the needs. And the hesed that she's showing is greater. This to us is surprising, but we find that this to be a noble man and her, a noble woman that is a heart shaped after God's intentions, given over to God's purposes. And here we find this exclamation. And Boaz is willing to own the, re, the kinsman redeemer role. He becomes what is a, a Hebrew word called the Goel. But he says, I am not the only Goel. I am not the only one qualified. As a matter of fact, there's one even more qualified. I am a redeemer, but I'm not the redeemer. We'll find out in the next chapter if he discovers and if he's able to work through who the Redeemer is. But he says, but, but he's willing to admit, I am not, I am not the Redeemer. By the way, there is only one Redeemer. We will find him manifest in this way and we can take this apart and look at it from the other angle. He isn't the Redeemer. And from a human aspect and from a faith aspect, we, we ought to be careful not to seek Hesed from false Redeemers. From false saviors. We have a lot of false saviors out there. A lot of them even we've built into our own lives. Their physical routines and physical passions and, and even relational needs and ways in which we're seeking after Hesed in a way that God has not ordained. 
ways in which we're seeking after redemption, ways in which we're seeking to be filled, in which God says, that's not truly a redeemer. There's one nearer than that one. And it's me. We recognize in Boaz that he's not the redeemer, and it does remind us that we are people who are seeking after redeemers all the time. But we need to hold with, with all purity of heart and all, hold with all fascination of worship and hold with all commitment to truth that there is against all of the passions and against all the appetites and against all the, the wanderings of our heart that there is just one who qualifies to be the redeemer. There's only one who's going to take us from, from grief to grace. There's only one who's going to take us from emptiness to fruitfulness. There's only one who's going to pave his path and the journey that we walk with him, with Hesed. There's only one who has the right kind of Hesed. And so secondly, there is the covering of Hesed. In verses 10 through 14, Boaz acknowledges something here that has taken place. Where did she come up with this idea of the blanket? Culturally, it was not uncommon in ancient cultures that a, that a husband on the wedding day would, would take his garment and, and sort of as they would walk away from the ceremony or after exchanging vows and, and sort of formalizing the covenant together, that, that he would take his cloak and he would, he would take it over sort of the head and the shoulders of his bride and, and they would walk before the people so as to say, she is now under my tent, she is under my covering, she is under my wing. And Boaz was familiar that God had identified himself as that kind of a husband to the people of Israel. Earlier, especially in the book of Exodus, God had referred himself as the, the um, in, in, a, in a fashion of, of, of like a bird who, who huddles and <laughs> its chicks underneath its wings. And so in, in chapter 2, verse 12, remember when, when Boaz uh, meets Ruth, and, and she's at lunch with him, and he, and he exclaims, may, may Yahweh cover you with his wings. And now several weeks later, now she takes this image of, of the covering of the one who is in need, the covering of the one who is in need of provision and security and, re, and relationship. Now she takes us with Naomi, and she goes in at nighttime, and she seeks to cover herself with his wings, with the corner of his blanket, so as to say, you're like Yahweh for me. You must do, you must do this, you must cover me. And Boaz recognizes here in this passage that he will be the wing of Yahweh and he will cover her. Do you recognize that Boaz became the answer to his own prayer? In 2.12, he said, May Yahweh's wings cover you. And in chapter 3, Boaz is Yahweh's wings. Now, just put a pin in that. I won't go off on that, but put a pin in that and recognize we can be the answer to our prayers. But Boaz was being asked to answer his own prayer. 
And what Boaz really is meaning here is because you take refuge under the wings of God, you are the kind of woman that I want to cover with my wings. I want to cover you with my wings. You seem like the right kind of woman. In Ezekiel 16, 8, God uses the same terminology in relationship to Israel. And he said, I will spread my wing over you and cover your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine. That's a romantic word, by the way. You became mine, says the Lord God. And so literally, Boaz called Ruth this, this holy woman. A woman full of nobility, full of strength, moral strength, good quality, integrity, virtue. It's the same type of words when we find David as he, in, in the early part of his, his kingdom, is running for his life and he has he has several mighty men of valor around him. It's the word valor. And that's the word that Boaz uses here. It's the same Hebrew word. She is a woman of valor. It is the woman we find in Proverbs 31. The virtuous woman is the same word is used. By the way, in, in, some, in some canons of the scripture, that is that you know we don't have to have our Bibles ordered like they are here today. It's called a canon, the order of it. But in some canons, some old canons of scripture, the book of Ruth is actually right after Proverbs 31. So as I say, you want to know what a woman looks like, like this? Look at David's great-grandmother. And so you go Proverbs 31, and you go into Ruth. We find then, in a sense, I am sure of it, that Boaz and Ruth do not sleep a wink after that. But let's also say that Ruth rests. She lays down. Because Boaz says, do not fear. And do you know what? Verse 11 really is key for him to say that. Do not fear. That's important to rest, isn't it? If you know the character of the one who says, do not fear, then you can respond rightly. She didn't have to worry, is this man going to take advantage of me? Can I close my eyes? Can I rest? Are others going to find out? Am I protected? I'm very vulnerable in this moment. And he says, do not fear. And do you realize that if someone commands you to do not be afraid, that the, the character behind that has a lot to do with how you're going to respond. And if the character matches that which can bring you rest, then you can respond rightly. And if it is the God who sent his son into this world to die in our place, who says to you and I the most oft-repeated command in scripture, do not be afraid, for I am doing a good work in you, then you can rest. If that's the kind of person who's saying, do not be afraid, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Don't be afraid. For I bring you good tidings of great joy. Gabriel says it to Mary, don't be afraid for what is done in you is of the Holy Spirit. Joseph in his dream, do not be afraid to take her unto uh, you as a wife. For what is done unto her is done of the Spirit. Hesed really is the wellspring for rest. Do you recognize the relationship? It is, 
It is the watershed for rest. It is, is the origination for rest. If there's no hesed, then there's no rest. And as much as the story is of hesed, it is also a story, at least especially in this chapter, of rest. Like hesed, rest is a major theme in the scriptures and an integral part of the truth of redemption rest is. Ruth rests in Naomi's plan. Ruth rests at Boaz's feet. Boaz and Ruth rest until dawn, and Naomi and Ruth rest at the end of chapter 3, waiting for the, the resolution of the situation. And really, this is the part where, where after he wakes up and he says, don't be afraid, rest, this is the part where you and I live all of our lives right now. This is where we are all of, all of the time. We are living at the feet of the Redeemer, who says, do not be afraid, rest. But do we sleep? So often we don't. But we should. Because he says, do not be afraid. And all you need to do is lay there. And this is where we live all of our lives, at the feet of the Redeemer. Whether it is the day-to-day -day situations of life or the grand story of redemption, we find ourselves in the midst of a risky endeavor, but we are assured of a reason to rest. Is they, are things in your life risky? God doesn't diminish them one single bit. There's health risks. There's financial risks. There's job security risks. There's relational risks. There's risks all around us, and all of us every day are measuring out the risk and determining how bad, how restless we will feel. Meanwhile, God says, lay at my feet until dawn. Do not be afraid. Lay down. Lay down. I don't know if this word is reaching into you who are full of anxiety this morning. Where something is just turning over and over in your heart and you are restless. You can't escape this, this uninvited and reoccurring thought pattern. Study rest. Look into rest here. Find rest in the Gospels. But find rest in the scripture as a major theme. And let it speak and counsel your anxious and worrisome trained heart and mind. Because rest is the antidote to worry. And rest is fueled by Hesed. When Ruth returns home, in verse number 18, Naomi tells Ruth to wait and rest. Because of Hesed, we can rest. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 116, 7. Return, O my soul. He's self-counseling. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And the word Lord there is Yahweh. The one who kept his covenant with you is dealing with you in such a way also that you can rest. Because of Hesed, we can rest. Without Hesed, we cannot possibly find rest. Do you know why our world is working itself feverishly to the bone? Do you know why depression rates are high today? Do you know why people are anxious and worrisome and nervous? And there's even fear-monger celebrities stoking the coals? It's because the world knows nothing of rest because it knows nothing of essence. 
You see, our world doesn't need to go to sleep in a bed. Our world needs to go visit an empty tomb and a risen Lord. And this, by the way, ought to be a testimony of every follower of Jesus Christ that we of all people know how to rest. We ought to be the best resters. We ought to have an occupational title. It ought to be on your Facebook status, profile information. It ought to be on your resume. I'm the, hus the husband of Jennifer. I'm the father of four. I'm a great rester. Not a pastor of Providence Church. It ought to be that way. It ought to be I'm a really good rester. Oh, Christian, you were given a new life so you can rest in Jesus Christ. One way to understand rest is to know rest is a form of peace. It's a subtle confidence in the sovereign control by a caring, covenant-keeping God. It is the presence of courageous faith and active trust in replacement of need-driven worry and despairing helplessness. Helplessness is always our condition, as we have said. We only feel helpless at certain times, but it's our true condition and nature. We are utterly incapable of making anything turn out for our advantage truly. Our powers and our strengths are useless unless God energizes them to accomplish his gracious purposes. And this is what we find in the middle of the night there on the threshing floor, is we find this plot by Naomi and Ruth, we find a good man, we we find barley, we find the Redeemer, but listen, unless God is in this, there truly isn't rest. And by the way, as you know, the greater story, unless God is in this, there's no redemption for you and I. So we also recognize that there is a great weightiness about our behavior. We recognize that there is a lot at stake in how we act and our beliefs during times of great need and distress. Because there's a lot in us that makes us feel that we can do more or do differently so that we can receive a desired outcome. We look back and we rehearse if we'd only said this, if we'd only done this, and how often our, our lives are lived in, in regret mode and we're reviewing and rehearsing and going over and manipulating the, the history as if we can try to make it resolve and we never can and so we're restless. But the Christian life cannot be lived without continual rest. Continual rest. That doesn't mean intermittent rest. It means continual rest. It is impossible to follow Christ without the perpetual posture of rest. And so lastly, we see the providence of Yahweh. We see the providence of Yahweh in providing for her material needs. She goes back to Naomi with five, six ephahs full of barley. It's a, it's a lot of barley, probably for a long time in their home. It's a sign of, of what's taking place. It's also perhaps protecting her so that she comes home and as the, as the dawn breaks and she's carrying the stuff, it looks like she was just going about her business or something. The Lord will watch over her and take care of her. He'll provide her material needs and do so, by the way, in a way in which she would have never imagined. In the providence of Yahweh, there is a promise made. Boaz makes a promise here. Today, when I rise up, I'm going to seek out your redemption. There's a promise made. And there's covenantal blessings. 
She's folded into the covenantal blessings of Yahweh with Israel in this moment. And the fact is that God brings more to the relationship than mere security. He brings more to our relationship as children of His than mere security and mere provision. And God brings more to all of these, even though those are our felt needs. These are the most immediate needs we feel. Oh, I have, I have something that aches. I have something that hurts. I have something that is afflicting me. I have a need, a pressing need. God brings more to the relationship than merely meeting these felt needs. Even though these needs feel very significant, none of us could ever say that these aren't real needs. Financial, material, physical. These are significant needs. But listen as Jesus chides the people of Jerusalem as he is heading to the cross in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And why could he not gather them? And he says, you were not willing to be gathered. You see, there's all the promises of God. There's all the provision of God in Hesed for our redemption. But so often we miss it because we're not willing. So we find, in conclusion, the way in which we act upon the truths in this passage is number one, trust in God. Trust in God. So long as the stars hang in the sky, trust in God till the stars fall. Trust in God. Trust in His character. Trust in the one who says, do not be afraid. Who is it that is making that claim? Trust in His word of promise. Trust in God. Trust in who God is and His character. Trust in His word of promise. Not one single promise has been left unfilled. I love how Dio Moody said, God never made a promise too good that He could not keep. This is the good news. Secondly, rest in His intentions. Even though the felt need feels very great, and it is real, it is significant, but rest in his intentions. His intentions haven't changed. He is still working today. He is still working about the glory and delights in his redemptive purposes. He is working in your working. He's working in your working. You're in the barley fields. God's working. Not just in the tent at midnight, but God's working with you in the barley fields. He is working with you in the tent in your sleeping. God is working in your working. He is working in your sleeping. Don't be mistaken. Who are we in this passage? We are Boaz. We are like Ruth. We are like all of the characters in this passage. And he is the one working over top of it all. Thirdly, receive his hesed. As Jesus said unto Jerusalem, and you are not willing 
you are unwilling to be gathered under my wings. Receive his asset. Don't refuse the kindness and loyalty of God's love as he demonstrates his power in both ordinary and unusual ways. Personal. Each one of us has ways in which God is meeting with us and working in our lives. Very personal. Cultural. Where are we at in the culture? What's your microculture like in your home, in your workplace, in our community, our society, in the age of our world? But God is working personally. He's working in you in the midst of your culture. As odd as it was for Ruth to go at night, a noble woman, relational. God is working in your life relationally to bring into your life Hesed because he loves you. It's not a business transaction. It's not a cold, sterile, diplomatic thing going on at some conference room table between him and you. God loves you dearly. He's your redeemer. Circumstantial. Receive his head said circumstantial, that is, in the moment, in the mess, in the messiness of life, in the crisis, and in the calm. Receive his said. To see none of these, whether it's personal, or cultural, or relational, or circumstantial, like with Ruth and Boaz, even though there seem to be so many barriers to making this happen. None of it challenges God. A virgin conceives. A tomb is empty. None of these are barriers for God to accomplish his purposes, not just in Ruth, but none of these are barriers for God to accomplish his purposes in you and I. Let's pray.